Love Chapel Hill. There it is. <laughs> so good to be back with everybody, to be back home. Welcome home to the varsity. How many of you are worshiping in the varsity for the first time today? All right. Awesome. Several. Yes. Several of you who have become a part of the church family uh, over over uh, this season when we've been a bit nomadic. Uh, we were online for a while, obviously, and then uh, at the Forest Theater and the Arboretum, uh, just making all of Chapel Hill our home. Uh, but it's so good to be back here after 20 months of not worshiping together in this space. So thank you uh, to everyone who's a part of this church family and this church community for embracing what we sense the Lord pressing us into from the very beginning of this. Our response was we felt the Lord challenging us to move with what would be most wise and most loving for the people around us. Not just what would be most convenient for us as a church congregation. And so along the way, you have just flowed with us and you have responded so well and been so supportive of each other as a church family as we've tried to live that out, as we've tried to walk in that. Uh, along the way, there were several decisions that were made that were not convenient for you. But you stuck together and you showed love to each other. And I'm so encouraged and moved by that. We've talked about this before, but we have several friends uh, who are pastors of churches who have not had the same experience. Uh, maybe within your own families, you've witnessed people not responding in the same way. And I just want to encourage you for the way that you have embodied and loved this community with the heart of Jesus. You have lived into and lived up to your name. And I'm so glad that we're able to be back in here together today now like this. Uh, today, we are starting a new series. Uh, in the gospel of luke and throughout the next five months all right we're going to be in the gospel of luke together so take a deep breath okay uh, but we're going to be in the gospel of luke from now starting today and then next week begins the church season of advent where churches around the world christians around the world are going to enter into this season of intentional waiting as we wait and we long for the arrival of jesus at Christmas. We'll celebrate that together at Christmas as well. And Luke has one of the best and most beautiful descriptions of that journey of longing moving towards uh, that moment of Christmas, the arrival of the Messiah, the fulfillment of that promise. So through Advent, we'll be moving through Luke and then through Epiphany. And then as we move into the ministry of Jesus and the miracles and the teachings of Jesus, that'll take us all the way to Lent through Lent to the moment of the crucifixion of Jesus and the victory of the resurrection of Jesus. So we're going to follow on this path together uh, on the way with Jesus through the gospel of Luke. And so today we're starting in uh, chapter one, verses one through four with the prologue to the book. So I'm going to begin by reading that and then we're going to unpack that together. Okay, here's how Luke begins his gospel. He says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, 
just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Jesus, even introductory comments and words like this have power to speak to us through the power of your word. So we pray today that you would open up our eyes to see you, open up our ears and hearts and souls to hear from you and to respond to you. Thank you for being with us every single step of the way and for meeting us back here in this place. And we ask that you would continue to lead us and move with us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So a few uh, insights here to uh, this beginning of, of Luke and this introduction that we get here to this gospel. Uh, the first thing is that this author of the gospel of Luke is also the same author for the book of Acts. So as the New Testament opens, you get four Gospels or four narratives about the life of Jesus uh, told from varying perspectives. And then following that, you get the book of Acts, which tells the story of the church uh, that emerges in the wake of the crucifixion, resurrection and ascension of Jesus, empowered by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter two on the day of Pentecost and sent out into the world to embody the kingdom of God in the world. And so Luke gets to write two books in the New Testament, two core books in his gospel. He tells the story of Jesus. And in the book of Acts, he tells the story of the church. Side note, this is one of the reasons why we wanted to name our son Luke. And for me, uh, we have twin sons, Samuel and Luke. And that was for me part of that motivation that he would tell the story of Jesus and the church. And so uh, that's that's part of that there. That's a little personal side note. I didn't plan on saying that, but I hope you're okay with me sharing that. Okay. <laughs> Don't tell him that. That'll embarrass him. Okay. Just kidding. He thinks he's named after Luke Skywalker, <laughs> which also side personal confession. It's that too. Okay. <laughs> it's definitely part of it as well. <laughs> All right. So, um, but, but Luke gets to tell these two stories together. And you can see how they are two volumes of this, of this complete work together. Two distinct volumes, but a complete work together. And in fact, scholars now, uh, probably for about the last hundred years, have taken to referring to uh, his writings as Luke Acts. They put them together and they see them and study them together and as companions to each other. One of the ways that we know this is the book of Acts begins in the same way. It has a very similar introduction. Uh, we get this uh, comment to a person named Theophilus, and it begins with, in my former book, Theophilus, I set out to tell you all that Jesus did and said. And then now he's saying, and now I'm going to go on to tell you what happened after that. So we see how these introductions uh, sound so similar. 
written to this person named Theophilus. Uh, and that's a Greek word that means, uh, the, the name means lover of God or friend of God. And so people think that this could be a, an influential uh, believer, uh, possibly a, a new disciple of Jesus, uh, possibly a, a Roman official of some sort, because you hear that he refers to him as most excellent Theophilus. And so this sense of honor in the way that he refers to him. But some people think that instead of it being one person who maybe uh, is kind of funding the writing of this book, uh, of the telling of this story, instead it might actually be written to a community of people who are known as lovers of God. A community of people who are known as friends of God. And that's, that's a possibility as well. It's not as strong of a possibility, uh, but the thought of a community being known by their love for God and love for others. I don't know why, but something about that grabs my heart. All right. So think about it in that terms too. It's, it's possibly that setting that he is telling this story into and helping to shape uh, these new disciples and these new believers in the story of Jesus. There's another thing that both of these books have in common, and that is that both of these books are about a journey. The Gospel of Luke begins on the outskirts and on the edges and in obscurity. Uh, it will begin with this couple uh, who are, well, we're going to learn about Zachariah and Elizabeth uh, next week. We'll be talking about them. Also, of course, Joseph and Mary. Uh, this poor couple from this nowhere town of Nazareth, no influence whatsoever. And that's where this story decides to begin. And so from the outskirts of Nazareth, then the story moves into the ministry of John the Baptist, this outcast prophet who's preaching out in the wilderness. And from there, we'll move to Jesus uh, and his 40-day journey into the desert. And so you see this edge and this outcast and this obscurity kind of beginning to the gospel of Luke. And then as the ministry of Jesus builds, the largest section of the gospel of Luke is found from chapter 9 to 19. And that entire section is telling the story of Jesus's journey towards Jerusalem. And so you see this story that's about a journey from the outskirts from the edges to the heart of it all in Jerusalem. That's where this book is going. It's a book about a journey. The book of Acts is also about a journey, but it's heading in the opposite direction, it seems. And it moves from Jerusalem where the story starts, where the Holy Spirit is poured out on the first believers at Acts chapter 2, but then empowers this missionary movement that is taken out, as it says, to the edges of the earth, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. That's the outline of the book of Acts. And where does it end after it follows all of these journeys and tr missionary travels? It ends in the heart of the Roman Empire, in a Roman prison cell. That's where this story ends. And so it's gone from Jerusalem to the Roman Empire. And so you see the trajectory of these two journeys from the outskirts and edges and obscurity 
to Jerusalem, the heart of Israel's story, and then from Jerusalem to the ends of the world. This is a movement that is turning the whole world upside down. So we're going to go with this language of on the way, because that is the kind of story that he is telling us. He's telling us of a God on the ground kind of story. As a scholar and theologian Willie James Jennings from, uh, from Yale Divinity says, here's what he has to say about this story and Luke and Acts together. He says, Luke is a master storyteller. He's a master storyteller, not because his skill in storytelling rises above all of his contemporaries or because of his command of the historical archive of events, saying stories and accounts of Jesus and his disciples' actions and decisions. His two-volume work, Luke Acts, exemplifies master storytelling because he follows God on the ground, working and moving in and through the realities of struggle, of blood and pain, suffering and longing. He never loses sight of God or of humanity, both locked in the drama of life together, aiming toward life abundant. This is a story of God on the ground and a God who walks with us on this journey on the way. So we've started here at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. Now I'm going to encourage you to turn to the end of the Gospel of Luke, to the last chapter, Luke chapter 24, and we're going to see where this journey goes. And we're going to tie these two ends together here at this beginning point. I know it's a little bit strange to begin at the ending, but that's what we're going to do today and see how this story comes together and also what this piece of the story, what this part of the journey on the other side of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus has to say to us and where we are today. So this is the story of uh, on the road to Emmaus, the two disciples who meet Jesus on the road. It says this, starting in verse 13, chapter 24. Now that same day, what same day? Anybody know? What day is this taking place? Easter. All right. Easter Sunday. All right. The resurrection day of Jesus. The world is being shaken at its roots. And it says now on that same day, two of them, two of who? The disciples. Exactly. Two of the disciples of Jesus were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. Jerusalem is where the, the crucifixion and the resurrection have taken place. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you, the only, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? Jesus asked. Can't you just see him doing that and hear him doing that? What things? Tell me about it. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet 
powerful in word and deed before God and all people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. We had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but did not find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. He said to them, How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all of the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? I love it. It's one of my favorite stories in the Gospels. I love it. A few things that we see happening here that speak into where we are today as well. Number one, we see these two disciples after the turmoil that they have been through, they're left wrestling with this question of who is Jesus? Who was that? And what do we make of him? What do we make on the other side of this trauma of the crucifixion that we experienced, that we witnessed, that we felt the piercing of in our own hearts, the collapse of everything that we expected and hoped for, not to mention the loss of this person that we love and trusted so deeply, this person that meant so much to us. What do we make of his life and everything that he accomplished, the way that it ended? And now what do we make of these rumors about resurrection? What are we supposed to do with that? Who is this Jesus? That is such a crucial question for every one of us in this room today. Who is Jesus? How do you answer that question? Maybe you feel like these two disciples, like you had certain hopes, like you had certain thoughts. You thought the story was going in one direction and now the entire narrative has been upended for you. The things that you hoped for, the things that you thought you were going to see, they have collapsed. They have broken down. And where you thought the story was going, it, it has taken a 
tragic turn for you. Maybe there's not some evident tragedy for you personally, but maybe just a slow process within you where a heart that you felt once burned for him has gone dim and cooled. And now you wonder if that was ever even real at all. The structure that you saw of your life has come apart. And now you don't know what to do about it. Perhaps this person that you thought you were basing your whole life on, now you wonder who even is that person? What do I make of this? What do I do with this? It's a crucial question for every single one of us, not just for understanding our own lives, not just for understanding Christianity as a faith, but for understanding world, world history. He's a central figure of world history, and it is one of the most compelling and confusing questions for the world to wrestle with. Historians, philosophers, theologians have dedicated their entire careers to wrestling through this question. His name is known in countless cultures around the globe. Varied religious traditions honor him in different ways for his ethics or his teaching, for his way of life. He's a mainstay of popular culture. He's an enigma to the experts. Biblical scholars have launched wave after wave in search and quest after the historical Jesus. And though many of the conclusions have been extremely helpful, there is still no consensus among those who are searching, except over two things. Number one, this it's a historical fact that there was this man named Jesus. No serious historian doubts that. And number two, that this man and the followers who claim him have reshaped the world as we know it. Those are two things that no one disputes. It's interesting that these two disciples on the way actually come to four conclusions that are still very popular in the world today that many people would point to when they're trying to answer the question of who is Jesus. Four that, that make their way through history to us today. You'll recognize them. The first thing they say about him was he was a prophet. There are other world religions that refer to Jesus to this day as a prophet with this sense of respect, revering him as a prophet. And others who would say he was some religious authority of some sort, no doubt. No doubt. He carried weight in that category. Others would say, and this is what they said, he was powerful in word. Those are the words of these two disciples describing Jesus. And to this day, people are still amazed at the inspiring teaching of Jesus. And people who have no interest in claiming him as Savior, no interest in rearranging their lives around his life, would still take a step back and say, as I read his teachings, if we followed that, this would be a better place to live. distant from any kind of religious connection to him, but just looking at his teachings, he was brilliant. He was a genius. And if we followed his philosophy, then this world would be a better place. The disciples said he was not only powerful in word, but in deed, his life is one worth 
following. And people to this day will say, I don't really believe in all that is surrounding him. And I certainly don't believe in the people who follow him. But I will say, as I look at his life, his life is a moral example worth following. His life is a life worth imitating when we think about the way he lived his life. His compassion. His sense of justice. And that word that defines him in the minds of most people that is most connected to him, love. Love. Most people would say he's a moral example. And then there's the fourth one that they said, we had hoped that he was going to be the one who was going to redeem Israel. In other words, people to this day look at him and say he was a revolutionary leader of some sort who launched some kind of freedom movement that impacted the world. He was a revolutionary leader. It's so interesting that these disciples, hours after the crucifixion, hours after these rumors of resurrection that start to spread, they list all four of these things that we're still saying about Jesus today. But the reality of Jesus is this, that he will not fit into any of these categories because he fills up, overflows out of any of these categories. He is all of those things that we just listed, no doubt, but he is something so much more than any of those things. He is in a category of his own. He is in a category of his own making. He is a completely set apart life in the history of this world. That last category that they list when they said we hoped he would be the redeemer of Israel. We hoped he would be a revolutionary leader. People still to this day for the sake of their agenda of change will appeal to the life of Jesus as a model for that or to try to convince people to join up with their agenda. It happens across the spectrum. Whatever comes to mind when you hear that word agenda across the spectrum People appeal to Jesus in different ways, not even in a faith way, but in a way of pointing to this significant life. And these disciples were doing that too. They wanted him to be the redeemer of Israel. They wanted him to be a revolutionary kind of leader. That's what they thought the Messiah was going to be. When they were awaiting the king of Israel to come, they were hoping that someone would come along and would overthrow the Roman Empire and free them from their oppressive reign. The Jewish people at this point in their history, they are not a sovereign nation. They are under the oppressive reign of the Roman Empire. And in fact, it's the Roman Empire that puts Jesus to death. The religious establishment conspiring with the political establishment, that is always so dangerous. That is always so dangerous. And they are putting Jesus to death in that arrangement. It's those two powers coming together. Of course, neither one of them could hold him down. But they had hoped that he was going to be that kind of a military messiah, that kind of political leader who was going to overthrow Rome. It's interesting the setting of this story. Where are they on the road to? Remember? 
Emmaus. What comes to mind when you think of Emmaus? Nothing. <laughs> exactly. All right. You're like, maybe this passage. Only other time I've ever heard that word. Okay. Exactly. For us, it means nothing. What comes to mind when you hear, and go ahead and shout out some answers. What comes to mind when you hear Pearl Harbor? Okay. All right. Yeah, war. Exactly. An unshakable kind of moment in our history. That immediately then the rest of that story starts to play out in your mind, doesn't it? What took place there and what came out of that. What about when I say the word Gettysburg? Okay, Civil War. Exactly. A turning point battle in the Civil War. Now for the people who are reading this story at this time, for the people who, as it says, they are from Emmaus. They're headed back home to Emmaus. Without a doubt, Emmaus would have carried the kind of level of history unfolding in their minds and hearts in the same way that we would name a moment like that from America's history. A moment of war. A moment of battle. Emmaus was the site of a turning point victory for the people of Israel. About 200 years prior to this moment that we're in, in this passage, about 200 years prior to this, they were under the oppression of, uh, of a Greek empire. And there was a figure named Judas Maccabeus, or, or sometimes called Judah Maccabee, uh, nicknamed Judah the Hammer. That's a nickname for you, all right. Who was this military hero who pulled together this collective of Jewish freedom fighters who said, we are going to overthrow these oppressors off of us and we're taking our home back. And that's what they did. And in that moment of victory, they usher in a 100 year period of peace for the people. Now, there are people who are much smarter at history and theology in the room. If, if I'm wrong, you can correct me. All right. But just do it quietly. All right. <laughs> but ushered in this 100-year period of peace. Without a doubt. Every time they think of Emmaus, there's that sense of pride. Every time they think of Emmaus, there's that sense of history. And here they are on the road back. But we had hoped that he was going to be the redeemer of Israel. We had hoped he was going to be a revolutionary leader. We had hoped he was going to be Judah the hammer. We had hoped he was going to be that kind of Messiah to overthrow our enemies and institute a century of peace. But instead, the Roman Empire crucified him in the most painful imaginable. The disciples in this story are walking back to Emmaus, and in the process, they are disillusioned, they are disoriented, 
because the narrative has broken down. First, there's the trauma of the crucifixion, and now there's these rumors of resurrection, and all of it left them confused and searching for what was next. They were disoriented by the resurrection because they hadn't even dared to hope for it. They're hoping for a battle. They're hoping for that kind of victory. They didn't even dare to hope for something like a resurrection. They were hoping for an uprising to crush Rome, not for a crushed leader who would be raised back up. It was beyond what they could hope for. Let me ask you this question. Where do you go when your story breaks down? Where do you turn back to when the story doesn't go the way that you were expecting it, when confusion hits, when chaos hits, when you're disappointed and disillusioned? Where do you go? What's your default response to disorienting change? And you're going to have to sit with this one for a second, but where do you see Jesus actively engaged and meeting you in the middle of that story? Meeting you on the road and on the way as you're running to your default response to being disoriented and disillusioned. Their reaction was to search out another script that they thought was a better script. They're thinking about Emmaus. But Jesus then, it says in this passage, takes the grand story of Scripture and shows them the true story, the true narrative, that they could not have even imagined that Jesus is the fulfillment of this whole story. And it says that Jesus walked them back through the prophets, through Moses. At the beginning of the fall, we went through the five Covenants of the Old Testament. Quiz time! Anybody remember? <laughs> Anybody remember number one? Adam and Eve. Number two? Noah. Number three? Abraham. Number four? Moses. Number five? Well done. Well done. Thank your neighbor for helping you pass the quiz today. All right. If that's to you, I'm also making... My sons learn that. That's part of our carpool catechism that we do every day. All right. And uh, they've got it. But they're probably as annoyed as you are with that. Okay. But so Jesus is walking them back through this story, just like we talked about through that series of the core covenants, how Jesus is the fulfillment of this whole story. And he's showing that to them. We've been praying the Psalms together and he's showing how he's that hope and that longing that we see in that beautiful poetry aching poetry of the Psalms. We read through the prophets and every one of the prophets is pointing ahead to this truth and this reality of Jesus. And he's walking them all the way back through it. And he's teaching them on the road how the whole story fits together. Jesus taught them by appealing to their intellect. But then it tells us that he takes it a step further beyond their intellect by literally pretending to go further, it says. And he's pretending like he's going to keep going once they arrive at Emmaus. And they say, no, come with us. The day is almost over. It's getting late. Come and stay 
with us. And in this moment, we see how Jesus allows them to be a part of this story. It seems strange to us that Jesus would kind of pretend that, right? But he's giving them an opportunity to discover them because Jesus will initiate, he will invite, he will intrigue, he will inspire, he will insist, but he won't invade. And so he gives them this opportunity and they welcome him in. And listen to this, it is through their kindness to a stranger. They think he's a stranger. It is through their kindness to a stranger that they end up welcoming Jesus himself into their home. Isn't that so beautiful? Let me pause right here for one moment and thank you for the way that you continue to care about people throughout this entire stretch. Many of you kept showing up here on Sunday mornings over the past year and a half to make sure that there was food for people who would normally be looking for that when they showed up here on a Sunday morning. Thank you for that. Thank you for the way that you continue to be active in your compassion, even while the entire world is legitimately concerned for themselves, of course. But you did not let your heart turn inward. You kept your heart turned outward. And I encourage you in that. So it's through this act of compassion to a stranger that they end up inviting Jesus himself to their table. And then that's the moment of clarity. Jesus breaks the bread at the table. And it says, as Jesus breaks the bread, their eyes are opened. Their eyes are opened. It's a beautiful sound, guys. It's beautiful. And this is part of welcoming. And this is part of hosting Jesus. We're hosts to Jesus. And that's beautiful. So in this moment, Jesus breaks open the bread and their eyes are opened and they are able to recognize him for who he is. Immediately, obviously, we're going to be sharing in communion in just a moment here. And immediately, that's where our minds obviously go. Oh, it's because of the communion moment. They remembered how he broke the bread at the Passover feast and gave new layers of meaning to this history of the Passover feast. And that's what they were thinking, and that's how they recognized. That's very possible. That's very possible. That would have been fresh in their minds if these two disciples had been in that room. We don't know if they were in that room. Maybe they were a part of the feeding of the 5,000, and they saw Jesus breaking the bread at the feeding of the 5,000, and that sparked this recognition in their minds. That's very possible that they would have been there for that. But what's most likely is that they were just used to being with Jesus at a table. Not just the communion moment as this special sacred moment, but over and over and over and over again because Jesus was always welcoming people to his table. I have a friend named Jason Berry who recently said, Jesus sat at far more tables than he flipped. We love the flipping tables moment. <laughs> and that's a beautiful moment. And there is that time of bold actions of insisting on justice for the oppressed, no doubt, no doubt. But the way Jesus most often did that was moving in mercy. 
for those who were being impressed, invite, oppressed, inviting them to his table. Those who had no other place to go. And he sat at far more tables than he flipped. And they were used to seeing Jesus in this setting. They recognized him because of their relationship with him. And their eyes were open. Jesus is not just a subject to be examined with the question, who is Jesus? He is a person to be encountered. And I am convinced that no one will be convinced until they have a personal encounter with Jesus. And that's where the eyes come open. The two disciples on the road were enlightened as they examined the scriptures and they explored the evidence that Jesus was the Christ, the son of the living God, their savior and king. But their confusion did not become conviction until there was a personal experience. Look at this. It was even Jesus himself who taught them the scriptures as they walked along the road. And apparently it wasn't clear to them until they were with him at the table. Jesus himself instructing them. But the story didn't make sense until they were with him at the table. Jesus is always going to appeal to our intellect. He loves your mind and he wants your mind opened and exercised and expanded and sharp. He loves that about you. But he's always going to connect the heart and the mind together. He appealed to their intellect, but as they looked back, they could not help but notice that something else was happening as they walked along the road. What was it? Their hearts were burning as they walked with him on the way. So please keep exploring. Please keep searching for the evidence. Please keep examining. But know that the experience is the moment where the story turns. And after that experience, these two disciples ran the whole seven miles they had just walked with Jesus, ran back over it to take that message of what they had experienced. As we're moving to the communion table together now, and we're going to share in this meal together, and we're going to remember this moment that we've just studied together, and we're going to ask Jesus to open up our eyes as he breaks his body for us. We remember how he did that for us on the cross. But as we get ready to move to the table, I want us to pause for a moment and to look back on our 20-month journey. Here, the Gospel of Luke is a book about a journey, and that's where we're going to be for the next five months together in this, in this journey. And where we started today and where we, we've ended at the end of it. And you can see this journey trajectory. And just like in these passages, we have also been on a journey together. And I want us to pause for a moment and to look back on this 20-month journey. And I want us to ask the question, didn't our hearts burn as he walked with us? Wasn't he gracious to us? Didn't he show his compassion and mercy? At times, he sparked our hearts to burn over injustice that we saw and witnessed in the world, and we were moved to do something about it. And we have to keep that 
we have to ask him to continue to spark that fire in us. At times, we have to admit that our hearts burned with anger over the division that we were seeing in our society, especially within the American church, over politics, over facts and how to handle a global pandemic. We've witnessed so much division and our hearts have burned and broken as we've watched all of that. And yet, as we stand back in this place that we have called home for so long and we get ready to gather around the table that's been the center of our home and around the host who is the heart of our home, Jesus himself. As we break open the bread, we're asking that he will open up our eyes once again so we can see today, look back and see how he's been with us. For some of you, it'll be a moment of answering the question of who is Jesus. This might be that moment for you. And I'll ask that he opens your eyes to that reality too. Luke is a book about a journey. And as Jesus himself walks us through it, we're praying that he will continue not just to open our eyes, but to ignite our hearts on the way. Amen. It was there at that table on his last night with his disciples that Jesus took the bread as they were celebrating the historic Passover feast together. And he showed them new meaning to what they had been practicing their entire lives. They sh he showed them a new completion to the story that they didn't even realize they were living in. He took the bread on the table and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken to make you whole. And he took the cup on the table. And he said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant. My blood poured out for the forgiveness of sin and the redemption of the world. Every time you share in this meal together, know that I am in it and I am with you. Remember what I have done and celebrate. That's what we're going to do right now. In just a moment, we're going to invite you to come forward. We are going to release row by row. And uh, so we'll start with the first row. We'll invite you to step up to the table. You'll be served. There is a vegan and gluten-free option if you need that. You'll be served and then make your way across the front row and then back into your row. Okay, so it'll be just kind of like a little circle that you're making there as you come down. We invite you to hold the elements until you get back to your seat and then partake when you get back into your seat. It is beautiful to get to share in this meal again together today. We pray that your eyes will be open and your hearts will burn as you share in the broken bread and poured out cup of Jesus. Amen.